I want to read the first 21 verses of the chapter as I start this message. You'll find that this message is kind of like, in a sense, the prequel to before the Lord, because it's the predecessor of King David being King Saul. And uh, this chapter that we're going to read today is probably the most typifying passage, narrative of Scripture, describing that king. And it's just a snapshot into his life that showed such an accurate picture of who he was. Okay? And that's what we're going to kind of to glean into today. Verse 1 of chapter 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Okay, I'll stop there real quick. The background to this passage is that when Israel was coming out of slavery from Egypt and wandering in the wilderness, Amalek attacked God's people. It was unprovoked. Israel did nothing to Amalek to deserve that attack. It was literally just striking out of violence and greed. And it shows a side of God that God is angered when the strong take advantage of the weak. You see that in Scripture. You see how God wants the strong and those who have resources to take care of the widow and the orphan. That God wants the strong person, the one who has the first, to take care of those who are, at least in societal terms, considered the least. Okay. And so God is angered when Amalek attacked Israel when, when he was vulnerable, when he was just coming out of slavery in Egypt, unprovoked. And so God says to King Saul, 400 years later, right? So time didn't erase this, right? It's not, time doesn't erase sin. Only blood does in the Bible, right? And so time didn't erase the sin of Amalek in the eyes of God. And God chooses Saul now, four centuries later, to punish him. And he says, I want you to utterly wipe him out. I want there to be no remembrance of Amalek and his people. From the king right down to every single animal, all gone. That's the background of this. Okay, verse 4. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telem, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Okay, He's an able leader here. And Saul came to the city of Amalek, and he set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. And so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. 
And he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless that they destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, okay, speaking to the prophet again, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned uh, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And so Samuel was distressed and he cried out to the Lord all night. You can get here the affection that Samuel has for the king. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded to, on down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Oh, Saul said, They have brought from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Is it not true Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission, and He said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent to me and have brought back Agag, the king of, the, a king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. We'll stop there. This narrative here. This passage of Scripture is such an important one in all of the Old Testament. It shows a side of God and how He relates to humanity and what He looks at, what He sees when He looks at His people. That when He sees me from heaven above, the, the focal point of my being, my actions, my inward motivations, how I go about what I do in life, this passage of Scripture shows so accurately God's intentions towards His people. And Saul here, the king of Israel, God's people, seemed to have totally missed the boat. Like he misunderstood the entire point of what God wanted to do to Amalek. And he was convinced in his own mind, in his own self, that he was in the right. That what he did deserved this pat on the back and a monument on the street corner, right? And so he was so busy just celebrating the victory that he was so blindsided to the heart of God. 
This message before the Lord, I, I, I chose part two of that same title because I think it's so important to look at the life of King David in relation to the life of King Saul. That when you see when God said to David, you are a man after my heart, I will choose the young ruddy kid of Jesse to be the next anointed king of my people. And this is why, why God chose him, that young man over this guy, head and shoulders above the rest, kingly in nature, in appearance and character, why God would say, I despise this and why he chose that. You need to understand the two in tandem that you cannot separate the life of King David from Saul and Saul from David because both of them, as you look at their lives, you see such an important side and portrayal of God's heart. This message before the Lord, the first thing that I'll say as, as a main point is this, that we must be so weary of using worship as a veil. This is exactly Paul, Saul's life here, right? He used this idea that all of the, the, the livestock, the best of the best, the sheep, the oxen, like all of this here, I deserve some praise for this is what he's thinking. We brought this back because we're going to go to Gilgal and we're going to just sacrifice this in worship to God. Like he was so happy about that idea. Right? And so he used that facade, the mask, or the portrayal of worship to cover something that was so despised in the sight of God. And I think this idea of veiling sin is so, in a sense, second nature to humanity. That we have stuff that's going on that's either selfish or sinful. You can put any label you want on it, right? And there is a tendency in humanity to take all that is dirty and to brush it under the rug or to shove it in the closet or to put a curtain in front of it so that it looks presentable, so that I can cope with myself, so that I can live with myself, and so that I can say what I have done is good. And this tendency follows us right into the altar of God. It comes before us and we can be worshiping God with hands raised and thinking about the people that are next to us. This is the tendency of humanity. That we are filled with inward motivations and on the outside we put this veil or this mask. And this is exactly what the king had done. God through Samuel clarifies the mission. King, God is so appalled by this people, Amalek. And he very well knew why. And so the mission was clear, extermination. Whether that you think that's fair or not, that's kind of how things happened in this ancient text. How things happened in that day. We don't do things like that. There are parts of the world where, where things like that, extermination or genocide, still happen, right? But what God is doing here was a form of judgment that was so into that era of time. Okay? We, we don't see that now. You don't see the churches or the God's people on a mission to say, you know what, there are sinners out there and we need to hold the sword and go exterminate them. This is not how God operates in the era of grace post 
Christ in the cross, in the New Testament church and onward. This is not how God operates. But here, in the context of the Old Testament, how things happened during this time, this was the judgment of God. That this people were attacking a vulnerable group running from slavery, and this, this hurt the heart of God. And finally, when the people were strong enough, God says, all right, Saul, I want you to go, and I want you to wipe this out. Extermination, this is the point. And Saul misunderstood that because this was not about territory or plunder or any of that rank or anything that military battles are are fought for. This was purely for the judgment of God. And Samuel made that clear to the king and Saul goes on this mission. He's this capable leader. He assembles all of these people 200 plus thousand men in in this army and they go and they set an ambush and they just completely just they're there they just run them over right and the king is at his mercy and everything just falls underneath Saul's hand and in this moment he has a choice he has a choice to follow through on what God said or there are other motivations just running and racing through his heart. And think of it as a man who has power, as a person in authority who is controlling an army and a city is now in ruin, that this city is at his beck and call. Anything that he says will be done. Because that's how weak now Amalek became in front of Israel. And something happens here that the king was spared that the best of the livestock were were spared. And I can see something happening here. That in my kind of reading of Scripture, I see Saul allowing the people to spare the choicest of the animals for sacrifice. I see that as a a form of self-promotion. Like in a sense, hey guys, make sure you keep the best. You guys do that. You guys take the best and you worship God with that. And in a sense, can you see the entire uh, people, the the assembly, the nation of Israel celebrating that decision of worship? Look at our king. How holy is he? He wants to save the best for God. All the while, Saul knowing that the mission was complete annihilation, yet he says to the people, hey guys, spare the best. And get that king, that trophy, that trophy of war. Make sure you keep him alive. I want everybody to know who the stronger king is. I want him captured and brought to the palace. I want him humiliated in front of my courts. And you can see the motivation of this leader come through the back of this text on the undercurrent. And God points it, puts it right under his finger. And through Samuel again, he puts him on the spot. What is the sound that I hear? Why is this king alive? Did you not hear me tell you the mission of God? And Saul was convinced, I did do the mission, right? I went on this and we completely destroyed them. And the people actually spared them, is what he says. The people did it. And we did this so that we could sacrifice it in worship to God. It says in the text, that everything that was precious they kept and only that was worthless was destroyed and 
in, in a sense, doesn't that show us something that, like it's easy to give worthless stuff away under the banner of charity. I mean, I've mentioned before to you, like if I haven't worn a, a pair of pants or a shirt in two years, I'll, I'll, I can give that to Goodwill or the Salvation Army. And I, I won't even think anything about it. And I bring this bag of clothes and I feel all good about myself going to the donation center. Oh, here it is. You know, I have all of this clothes for you. But I haven't worn it in two years. It was just collecting dust. Actually, this is doing me a favor because it's freeing up space in my closet for me to buy other clothes so I won't wear the other ones that are currently in there. Right? And under the veil of charity, I give stuff that I dare to say, in my own estimation, is worthless. But to take what is choicest, what I wear all of the time, the most expensive that I have, and to take that and in that same vein of charity, go to somebody who I know needs it but can't afford it, and then to give that there. To cut money off the top of my check and the bottom of the remaining portion is a completely different exercise. To give time to somebody when I feel like I have none or when I have plenty is a completely different scenario. That when I have stuff that is free and abundant and worthless in nature because I got so much of it, whether it be money or time or resource, whatever it is, that stuff seems to be, oh, hey, I'll give it like I'm a good person for giving this. I'll volunteer when I got the time. I'll have this and I'll, pa I'll pass it on. And please, you don't have to thank me for it. I've already thanked myself, right? That stuff seems to be so easy to give. But when it's cut off the top, when it's the best that I have, when I feel like, man, this is what I want to keep. Like this was my time. This was my money. This is stuff that I really love. The choices. There's a reason why tithe in Scripture is called first fruits. In an agrarian society, when you give the first of your fruits, everybody knows this. You go to the produce section. You stand and you see hundreds of apples in front of you. And you're literally looking at what are the best apples. The ones that haven't fallen on the ground are not bruised. Have, have a similar color throughout. It's not warped or deformed. And you're looking for the, the, the best ones. Whenever you go to any agrarian society, there is first fruit and last fruit. There is the first of the crop that is the best, that was of the, the, the strongest branch or vine, that came out the plumpest and the most colorful, the tastiest, was just ripened right. And there's other stuff that was at the bottom, fell on, on, on the ground, that's just a little bit slightly underperforming, undersized, underflavored. And that's the least of it. And when Scripture says, when you give to God, when you come before Him with an offering, I want you to bring first stuff. That when you look at your livestock, I want you to find that you lamb that is without blemish. I want you to find the strong one. I want you to give the very best of what you have because this is what God deserves. Not when I have time to worship, but when I have none. That shows the strength and the portrayal of my worship the most before God. It's easy to give God stuff when I seemingly have a lot. And it says everything that was despised, ugh, we don't need that, just, just kill it. Do away with that. But they weren't willing 
to sacrifice the choicest. It shows this side of the king. It exposes him. I mean, to judge a king, not by the edicts of the throne, but by the whispers of the chamber, is more accurate. That when you see a man in power, a president who gives an address to the nation, don't judge him by those words. You judge him by what he says to his advisors in a, in a closed quarter chamber. The decisions that he makes that aren't publicized by the media. This is what was exposed in the life of the king. This wouldn't have been on Israel daily. This wouldn't have been front page news because nobody would have seen it this way. But what God was looking at, taking a snapshot at, looking at the king and saying, you know what? Everybody's celebrating you right now. Everybody is surrounding the monument you built for yourself that is your own likeness and they're celebrating you, the king. <laughs> Praise our king, is what they're saying. What a great leader he is. Capable, military commander, benevolent one, worshiper of God. The titles would have gone on and on and on. And it was such a mirage. It was walking in the desert and seeing it from a distance, so lush, so watery and plentiful. And the closer you get, wait a minute, there's nothing here. And that was the king. From a distance, he looked great, lush, so abounding in everything, worshiper of God. And the closer you got to his heart and God could see right in it, you saw that there was no substance. It was a shell of a man. A shell of worship is all that he had. It looked great and shiny on the outside, but it did not have any strength, substance, or power on the inside. You know that monument? I think that monument is the most telling sign of the condition of Saul's worship. Like, he was convinced that he did something good. Have you ever been, like, totally convinced in yourself? Like, and you, you were just like, yeah, like, man, I'm just like, man, whew, that was good. Like, 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 he was just like, if his arm was, like, long enough, he'd be, like, just patting himself on the back. And he was just like, yeah, Saul, you're the man. That's what he was doing. Because he's at the city, he's on the main street, the boulevard, main street, and he's like, man, hey guys, like, this victory was huge for our nation. Those guys, four centuries ago, literally walked over our ancestors, and now we have the upper hand. We have the final say. Hey guys, great job. Yes. And he builds this monument. Samuel hears the word of God. Oh, I regret that I made him king. And Samuel, he goes to find the king. He goes, where is he? Oh, he's over there. He's making a monument. <laughs> right? And he walks over to the king. And as the prophet is walking to the king, the king goes to the, the prophet. Oh, how blessed are you to be in my presence. Right? How blessed are you to have given me that command, that mission. You are blessed of the Lord, for I have fulfilled that. And he was like, man, that's it. He, he was just living it up. And like the prophet, he's confused. He's like, you actually believe this. You actually believe what you did was good in the sight of God. 
miss this? Why do I hear this? Oh, those things. The people. They spared that. Because actually, they're not going to stay here. We're going to bring them right to Gilgal, where that altar is. And that will be a form of worship to God. Wasn't it God who appointed you as king over His people amongst all of the tribes of Israel? Weren't you this big in the eyes of God and yet God puts you in this place to lead His nation? And he uncovers the facade. Can we go on? Verse 22. Then Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Sam, I sinned! I've indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words. And he states why. Because I feared the people and I listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. I'm going to comment on verse 25 in a bit. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among, men, among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul until his, the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The second main point is this. Confronting sin is uncomfortable. Um, that when some form of sin, selfishness, immorality is uncovered in our lives, 
whether through Scripture, a neighbor, or the internal voice of the Holy Spirit. When something is uncovered, unearthed, that I have been put on the spot, I am being held accountable by God right now, that He saw my motivation, that He sees the inward man that I am, and He has proclaimed judgment. That he has called me out on that. That now I have a dilemma. I can confront this. That I have now a resolution to make. That I cannot remain in this condition. Either I must obey and turn towards the Lord in repentance. Or I must continue to convince myself that my action was okay. I must do one or the other. If I do not do one or the other, I will be in a continual state of unrest. I will be emotionally unstable. So when I am confronted, my sin is brought to light, I can either repent or I can convince myself that my action was okay and this is why. And I will do one of those two. Because the confrontation of sin, though, is uncomfortable. And I wrote for you to be weary of self-justification. Because this is Saul, right? Self-justification, right? Okay, he realized now, okay, maybe I didn't follow through on the Lord's command. But the people, they were the ones that spared. Oh, wait, we did it for worship, right? And so the reasons were going on and on because he's trying to reconcile something. He's trying to reconcile the fact that his actions were still in the right even though Samuel's calling him out. Now he's just trying to figure it out. How do I make the story straight, right? How do I get it so that I'm okay with what I did and I'm not like condemning myself? And Saul, he's going through the gamut of excuses, trying to just justify himself. People did it. It was for worship. Blah, blah, blah. Right? And this self-justification, it helps us get what we want. It helps to preserve ourselves. Psychologists, Carol Taverson, Elliot Aronson, they have this book called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. And I have this quote for, for you. It says this, As fallible human beings, all of us share the impulse to justify ourselves and avoid taking responsibility for any actions that may turn out to be harmful, immoral, or stupid. Like, it's it's my nature, my tendency to try to justify myself so that I can just, like, still live with myself after a sinful, immoral, or stupid decision. that we're great at fleeing from reality, ignoring facts, shunning criticism or opposing feedback for the express purpose of holding on to what I already believe and what I've done. They go on and they say this, Self-justification has costs and benefits. By itself, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It lets us sleep at night. Without it, we would prolong the awful pangs of embarrassment. We would torture ourselves with regret over the road not taken or over how badly we navigated the road we did take. We would agonize in the aftermath of almost every decision. 
Did we do the right thing? Marry the right person? Buy the right house? Choose the best car? Enter the right career? Yet, mindless self-justification, like a quicksand, can draw us deeper into disaster. It blocks our ability to even see our errors, let alone correct them. It distorts reality, keeps us from getting all the information we need and assessing issues clearly. Like it's, it's a means of preservation. Like I just want to stay afloat. If I don't reconcile this in my mind, I'm just going to just wallow in shame and guilt and I can't have it. So I, I need to figure out a reason why it was okay. That's what I need to do. Like why it's okay that I did it this way. And this is exactly what Saul was doing. And there is a, a, a psychological term for this. If you've ever heard of it, it's called cognitive dissonance, right? And what it's defined as is the mental discomfort, psychological stress experienced by a person who simultaneously holds two or more contradictory beliefs, ideas, or values. Okay? And so it was a contradiction in Saul. I completely obeyed the voice of God in Samuel saying you didn't do it. Like that's a contradiction, right? Now I have to figure out how do I make these two okay? Like how do they make them playable? Like just amicable now? Like how do I resolve this disparity? And he's trying to figure it out. Okay, wait, I did it this way. We spared the king and the animals and Samuel's saying, wait a minute, da 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 da. And so like the reasons are either the people did it and I don't have the blame for it. And it was for worship. This is why we did it this way. And this is trying to recognize the stress that I feel emotionally and even spiritually. Right? That, that discomfort that I have when I'm confronted by God through the Holy Spirit, through Scripture, through the believing community of some aspect of my life that is not pleasing to God, that is in disaccord with His heart. And when that is uncovered, again, I have the choice. Do I repent of my action and correct it in maturity, grow in sanctification, or do I continue to find reasons to convince myself that I'm just going to live this way? This is my belief. This is just how I live. I need to be okay with it, right? And we're so good at that convincing. Buying a new car, buying the next gadget, upgrading to a new phone, right? Whatever it is. I read this story of a person who was contemplating buying the newest iPad for like 500 bucks or whatever it was. And this person wanted the iPad from the first generation. And he was saying, you know, I don't ha I've never had one was the first justification. The second one was I deserve it. The third justification was I could finance it for pennies a month, basically, like just for a few dollars a month. And fourthly, if I bought this, I'd read more eBooks. I'd be a smarter person. I'd be better off in life. And it's so easy yet in that simple example of buying an electronic device to say, you know what? I need to make myself feel better for why it's okay to shell out $500 for something that is not necessary, right? And don't we do that all of the time for purchases? And you just see the sales side. It won't be on sale tomorrow, reason number one, right? I came at the perfect time, reason number two, right? I need this. I deserve this. And it just goes on and on. And in our minds, we are justifying spending something, doing something that we need not do, that is not necessary, and sometimes is sinful, immoral, or dumb. 
And we, we just rationalize ourselves into continuing in that behavior. It is so easy to continue in a life of idolatry, to continue in a life of sexual promiscuity, to continue in a life of greed, to continue in a life of disbelief, all because I need to stay sane and I don't want to turn another way towards God and I want to continue in my action and believe what I want to believe and I do exactly what Saul does. I put a veil over it. I put a mask. And I say, this is a form of my worship. This is an expression of freedom. And it's something to validate why I can continue in this behavior after it was uncovered. This is Saul. And it's so important to see the comparison of his life to David. Last time in the first message of Before the Lord, I gave you the passage that was about the day that David's life changed. David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the capital city. And he does that, and they did it wrong the first time. And somebody is struck dead. Uzzah was dead for his irreverence. And David's like, what? What? God, what? Fist, anger, yelling. And I told you, it was that day when David feared the Lord. And it changed the trajectory of his life. And he goes back to his home. And he's figuring it out. His anger and frustration and fear, it turns to contemplation. He looks to Scripture and he gets it right the second time. He doesn't try to continue. I'm the king. We can do it any way we want. Get a better cart. Get another guy that's alive. Get the third son. And he didn't continue in that way. He contemplated after it was brought to light that something was wrong. And he goes to Scripture and he figures it out. Wait a minute, Kohathites carry shoulders, ark. And then they get it right. They start bearing the ark and they bring it to the capital. David is different now. He takes his kingly robe and he strips it off. And he's dancing and sweating with all of his might before the Lord. Gets to the capital and they are sacrificing Oxen and fatling and oxen and fatling and oxen and fatling every six steps from where it was until it got to its final destination. Must have took days, days to get it there. He changed. Because he had a similar situation. You did it one way and God said it was wrong. That you don't understand my heart through how you did it the first time. And David figures it out. Angered, fear turned to scripture. Doing it right. Abandoned worship. And yet Saul does it a completely different way. Uncovered. His action was displeasing to God. And yet all he has is self-justification. Why it was okay. And here you see the comparison of their lives. And I bring you these two messages to help you look at these two and see how these two can be present in your own mind, heart, and life. How I can live like David or like Saul. 
how I can have a shell of worship, how I can do the motions and, and have all of the outward portrayals to show everybody, family, church, and workspace, that I am such and such a person. And I can do all of this on the outward and I can convince myself with reason after reason why I'm a good person and why I'm just perfect in that. Or I can, like David, have this malleable heart, one that comes before the Lord and has a different set of eyes. And I told you the three most important words that David ever spoke were to his wife when he says, before the Lord. I wasn't dancing for those maidens you were talking about. I wasn't doing all of this for anybody. I was doing this for the Lord. I don't fear you. I don't fear what this nation is going to say about me. I'll take my robe off and dance because God deserves it. I did something the first way and God said, not this way. So I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to find the reason why it was so, and I want to do it in a way that honors Him. That was His heart. I'm doing this before the Lord, before God. Saul was different. Saul, it's uncovered, right? Samuel goes, ah, da, 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 da. you did it this way, and God says, annihilation, and forgive me, he says, right? And then he does something that is so like him, right? He says, return with me. Can you please go back with me to that public space? Can you go back with me to the palace? And can you worship with me? Because I, I want to go there and I want to worship God. And if you are next to me, it will tell the people that God approves of my kingship. If you are next to me, you are the seal of God's anointing over my throne. If you are there next to me while I'm worshiping before the nation and before the elders... I will be fine. My reputation will be restored. And to the very end, it was about his reputation before man. And he called it out himself. I feared man. I feared man. That's why I did that. They wanted it. They were saying they wanted it. I didn't want to say it. I want them to speak well of me. And I don't want them to speak ill of me. So I let them do it. And it shows this part. Just come back with me. Validate my reputation as the king. And at first, Sam's like, I'm not going back with you. <laughs> Grabs his robe, rips it. Ah, just like that, God's torn the kingdom from you. But he has a change of heart because you can see that the prophet Samuel had affection for the king. And he does return with the king. But it wasn't the same. Can you write a passage of Scripture, Matthew 15, if, in your outlines? I want to end with this and then just a few points. Matthew 15. You can flip there too. Praise team, you guys come back too. I want to give you a New Testament picture of this Old Testament narrative. This is now in the context of Jesus' ministry. And as he was going about, 
some religious people in the sect of the Pharisees come to him. And this is what it says. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they don't even wash their hands when they eat bread. So he's calling them out, the Pharisees, right? He's saying, you know what? It is our tradition when you eat, you wash. They're dirty. And in a sense, he was saying, they're sinners, right? They're not following traditions and laws properly, right? Tisk tisk, right? They don't got it together. Like, I can see it in plain sight is what they're saying. In verse 3, And he answered and he said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever shall say to his father or mother, Anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And thus you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy to you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. This is the New Testament picture. God said, Honor your father and mother. And the religious group were saying, you know what? Like, we really don't want to help them. Like, we got the resources right now, and we know that they're in need of some help, like financially. But we're going to tell them, anything that you could have gotten from us as your children, we've given it to God. It's been devoted to God. And that's what they were saying. And Jesus calls them out. In the form and mask and facade of worship and devotion to God, you neglect a command of God. You say to yourselves and you convince yourselves that it's okay not to honor your father or mother in the veil of worship. You're just honoring me with lips. Lip service. And he calls them out on just like Samuel called out Saul. And so I end today by saying these two things. First, when we fear man, we have positioned our hearts to disobey God. Soon as you say to yourself internally that it is more important to have a good reputation before people, I have automatically positioned myself to disobey God. Because there will come a time when God is just leading me in a way that it's uncomfortable. That, I, that God's going to call me to say stuff, do stuff, live a certain way that not everyone's going to jive well with. And when I fear man, I'm not in the right to honor the Lord. David feared God. And lastly, it's what Samuel said to Saul. Does God delight in sacrifice as he does Surrender? Like, sacrifice is important. But doesn't God delight more in a life of obedience and of surrender? That you're telling me that these animals are for worship, sacrifice, that this blood will be spilt as an aroma to God. And you, I'm telling you, okay, that might be a good thing, but I want you to know in the hierarchy of God, obedience to Him is more important than the fat of rams. 
that surrender is more important. And so I leave that with you today, this week, through this message. And I hope that through the House Church Guide this week, through your own time of prayer and meditation, and however God speaks to you, whether in the car or in the shower or in singing praises during worship, however and whenever God speaks to you, I pray that you have a condition in your heart that is so unlike the king here in our passage and much more like the one that succeeded him in King David. That when God unearths something that is dumb, immoral, stupid, sinful, and he just brings it to light, have the mentality to say, God, I fear you more than the circumstance or the people, and position yourself for obedience, for surrender. This is what I just... I call you to, I beg you to, I admonish you to, that compare these two lives, David and Saul, and live like David, worship like David, abandoned and free, expressive in fearing God first and foremost. Amen.